Good day and welcome to our Bible study. I hope everyone had a wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving day. We're going to continue on today in the Gospel of John in chapter 12. Today we'll be covering verses 37 through 50. Let's review from last week before we jump into today's lesson. Last week we learned and, and we studied about how Jesus was predicting his death. And Jesus spoke how one can enter into the kingdom. And the only way you can enter into the kingdom is by knowing him, right? See, we learn that living in this world, and you live for the world, you live in this world, for the world, that's not going to get you into the kingdom of God. But those people who don't live for the world, meaning materialistic things, right? But they put God first place in their life. They put Jesus first place in their life. They get to know Jesus on an intimate basis. And that person's going to be saved because Jesus says those people who recognize him, they also recognize the Father and the Father recognizes and honors them because they recognize Jesus. See, this means you're in the family of God. This means you're a child of God. See, not everybody's a child of God. Because if you don't know his son Jesus and you don't walk with him, you don't have an intimate relationship with him, then you're not a child. You're not welcome into the family of God. Then Jesus, we seen last week, he goes straight into talking about his death. He first began talking about how he's the light of the world. That the light of the world is only going to be here for a short period of time, he says, right? See, and all of humanity needs to walk in the light before darkness comes and overtakes them. That's what Jesus says. See, Jesus goes straight to why he was sent to this earth. Looking back last week, he says this, Now my soul is trouble, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. See, Jesus goes straight to the matter right here, right? His human side had taken over. Because the scripture tells us, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? See, Jesus was God in the flesh. He was God, but he was also human. And right here he's saying his soul is troubled. He's telling us he's going to die. And he knows what death he's gone through is going to be very, very painful. See, this shows us something here. It shows us that Jesus wasn't concerned about his earthly life. Now, why do I say that? Because Jesus came to do the Father's will. And he did it perfectly. Because Christ, Jesus raised him. God the Father raised Christ from the dead. Second, this earth will pass away, right? But you see, the kingdom of God is eternal. So this world, this earth, really this life doesn't matter. And lastly, Jesus had to die for us so we can have a chance to be with him and the Father in the kingdom of God. We also saw that the Jewish people were misled. They were, they were deceived by the religious leaders. See, the people were told that the Messiah that was to come would never suffer, would never die. But the scriptures tell us different in the Old Testament, the prophets. So this tells us that the people were being misled by the religious leaders. See, the religious leaders had rejected truth because they embraced the traditions of the elders, right? They embraced their man-made laws. They were deceived. 
And because they were deceived, they were deceiving the people. And we saw last week, Jesus ended up speaking about walking in that light and staying in that light. Because if you're not going to be in that light and stay in that light, then darkness will overtake you. So that being said, let's continue on with this conversation that's going on here that Jesus is speaking. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 12, starting in verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many of these signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill what the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they cannot believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their fate for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing me and also the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me condemned me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So let's go back up to verse 37. And the scripture tells us, even after Jesus had performed these many signs in their presence, there meaning the religious leaders. The Bible tells us they still would not believe in him. Now remember, they's the religious leaders. So we see here that the religious leaders, they followed Jesus everywhere he went. They seen Jesus do all these signs, miracles, and wonders, right? But the scripture tells us right here that even though they were in the presence of Jesus and they seen Jesus do all these things, they still not believe in them. So, why doesn't God make them believe, you might say, right? Because of free will. See, God gives us free will to choose His Son to get to Him. God gives us that free will. He doesn't want us to be robots. See, the religious leaders wanted full control. They wanted free will for themselves. They didn't want to serve Jesus. They didn't want this kingdom to come. Because they will lose control. They will lose power. They will lose authority. See, all what the flesh says we want, right? That's what the flesh is. That's being directed by the flesh. So we see that they didn't believe. Although they witnessed all these things. Now, they should have known that this was the Messiah. 
Because these are the religious leaders. They know the Old Testament says what the prophets say in the Old Testament. But yet, what they do, they turn their face to it. They ignore it. Verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of, the, of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, if you look at that first text, it says, Lord, who has believed our message? This is found in Isaiah chapter 53. And this is one of the greatest passages, Isaiah 53, that talks about the suffering servant. Now, he's quoting just a little bit of it here. But he also takes another passage from another verse from Isaiah. And right here in this scripture, he combines it and he talks about the arm of God, the arm of the Lord. Now, what is the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is found in Isaiah 53.1. And the arm of the Lord means force, help, mighty, power, strength. So the arm of the Lord is a vivid image of God's saving power, we can say. But it's more than, than that. Why do I say that? Because in Isaiah 59.16 and Isaiah 63.5, the prophet tells of how God will save his people by his arm. Now, this phrase, the arm of the Lord, obviously we're talking about Jesus. It leads to the Son of God. It leads to Jesus. So all this is pointing towards the cross. All this is pointing towards Jesus. And that's exactly what the prophets of old, especially the major prophets, even some of the minor prophets, spoke about. They spoke about this suffering servant who's going to be sent here from God to redeem his people. So I want to talk about this arm of the Lord, and I want to break it down for you in eight steps because it's all biblical. First is the language describing God, right? See, there's many places in Scripture where human parts are assigned to God, even though he's a spirit who does not have arms, hands, or a body. He's a spirit. Listen what the Scripture tells us in John 4, 24. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So with that being said, when God created the world, and especially when he created human, humanity, right? He created us, humans, in the likeness of his image. That's what the scripture tells us. He gave us bodies, right? And he gave us bodies that could reflect in its form and function. In other words, taking on the character, his character, Jesus taking on or, or, or acting upon his work. Talking about the forthcoming redemption, right? In other words, God made mankind in such a way that we would be able to understand his strength by phrases like the Lord's strong arm or mighty arm, some of your Bibles might say. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said. Jeremiah 21.5 says this, I myself will fight against you. Now, this is God talking to the prophet Jeremiah about the nation of Israel, about the Jewish people. He says, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. So we see this outstretched hand, but we also see the phrase mighty arm. Now I'm going to be talking in these eight steps and you're going to constantly hear those two words. Outstretched hand, mighty arm, or vice versa. But it's always talking about a, 
an arm, and it's always talking about a hand. And right here, Jesus, the, the scripture is telling us here that God himself is going against the people of Israel, and he's going to bring wrath upon his own people. Why? Because they disobeyed him, and they continue to disobey him. Because they don't follow his commands. They don't follow his word. They don't trust him. They don't believe in him. They don't obey him, right? And, and this went on for, for years and years and years and years. And God gets, he gets tired of it. So he's going to put the wrath on them so they can turn from denial and turn to him and repent. That's what this is all about. But what I want you to see here is those two phrases, outstretched hand and mighty arm. The second step is the language of the Lord's arm begins with his deliverance of the people from Egypt. Remember, the Old Testament, especially the first five books, the Torah, it, it, it gives us much, much information about the coming of the Messiah, about Jesus. How what Jesus did, remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Nuh-uh. He didn't come to get rid of the law, Right? But he came to do what? He, he came to add to it. He came to make it better for us, right? Where we can understand. But it all relates, goes back to what? The Old Testament. See, references to the Lord's arm goes all the way back to Exodus. Where Yahweh saved his people by defeating Egypt. Right? But we find out later from the Apostle Paul, right? In later scriptures, speaking about Romans and the Apostle Paul, it reveals how God intended to display his power in this event. Listen to what Romans 9, 17 says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So in the scripture, God raised up Pharaoh, right? He put him in that power. But he also brought Pharaoh down for the sake of his own glory. But in the biblical history itself, we find that salvation really comes from the offspring of Abraham with an outstretched arm. Exodus 6.6 6 tells us this, right? This is what it says. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you, listen to what it says, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So we see this phrase again, outstretched arm. What does that mean? That means strength. That means power, right? See, the, the historical event found in Moses' words and the, the technical description, I guess, about God saving Israel with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, you can find that in Deuteronomy 4.34, Deuteronomy 5.15, Deuteronomy 7.19, Deuteronomy 9.26, Deuteronomy 9.29, Deuteronomy 11.2, Deuteronomy 26.8, and Psalm 136.12. It speaks about all this. Deuteronomy 4.34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation by himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by the mighty hand and outstretched arm? There it is again. And we see that throughout what I just read. Deuteronomy 5.15, Deuteronomy 7.19 says the same thing. So this phrase, outstretched arm, mighty hand. And I'm getting to what that means in a second. The third one is this. The Lord's arm is often spoken of in conjunction with his hand. And together they speak of God's power to save and to judge. So at the same time, the Lord's arm occurs frequently in conjunction with mention of the Lord's hand. Right? 
See, for instance, the first two occurrences of these respective words or phrases, they show up at the very beginning chapters of Exodus, where a mighty hand will be required to pry Israel out of Egypt. We see that in Exodus 3, 19 and 20. But a few chapters later, we see that Yahweh, God, reassures his people that he will redeem them. How? With an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, Exodus 6, 6. So here are respective verses in the context. Exodus, Exodus 3, 19 and 20 says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Exodus 6, 6, I just read it to you, right? With an outstretched arm and with mighty great acts of judgment, God will deliver his people. So these two verses stress the two sides of God's work in Exodus. The first is salvation for his people, and the second is judgment on unbelieving enemies. So God's hands, they bring judgment, but his arm, this is what I wanted you to see, his arm brings what? Salvation. So all this is pointing to Jesus. And we know that Jesus saves. He came the first time to save. But the second time he's coming, he's coming back, the Bible tells us, as the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's not coming back to save the second time. He already came. He came to save the first time. But they missed him. The Jewish people missed him. They missed out the majority of them. When he comes back the second time, it's to judge. It's, it's to set up his eternal kingdom. It's to do away with un, unrighteousness and unholiness. It's to do away with evil. It's to do away with unbelievers. Another step, step four. The law and the prophets and all the writings of all the historical references to God deals with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. Deuteronomy is the place where you find the power of God. And it's most frequently designated by his power, his outstretched arm, right? The mighty hand of God. If you go to these passages, Deuteronomy 9.26 and 9.29, it tells you that. Deuteronomy 11.2 tells you that. Deuteronomy 26.8 tells you that. Deuteronomy 6.21 and Deuteronomy 7.8 tells you all that. So I want you to take time and, and, and go back and read those verses that we're talking about. But it's talking about this, this mighty arm, this outstretched arm, this powerful hand. Five, the prophets repurposed the phrase to speak of God's future salvation. See, God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm become a word of hope for the latter prophets, right? And for us. If you look at the three major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. It all speaks and it all describes this mighty hand, this outstretched hand, this powerful hand. Jeremiah 27, 5. It is I who by my great power and outstretched arm, there it is again, have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Jeremiah 32, 17, and 21. The Bible tells us, Ah, the Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power 
and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. Ezekiel 20, 33 and 34, As I live, declares God, surely with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, here it is again, and with the rat poured out, I will be king over you. This is speaking of Jesus. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah prophesies the coming of the Messiah. I will bring you out of the people and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with the wrath poured out. Step six, let's speak about Isaiah. In Isaiah, salvation comes the arm of the Lord. There are at least 12 instances, 12 scriptures, right? Where the arm of the Lord is mentioned. Isaiah 30, 30, Isaiah 30, 32, Isaiah 33, 2, Isaiah 40, 10, 40, 11, Isaiah 48, 14, Isaiah 51, 5, Isaiah 51, 9, Isaiah 52, 10, right? Begin, all this begins in Isaiah 30. God's promise of redemption is reflected by a strong arm or an outstretched hand or vice versa. So clearly the arm of the Lord is, is a predominant way in which Isaiah, in this case, understands the coming salvation. It's pointing to the cross. It's pointing to Jesus. Seven, the arm of the Lord becomes more than a metaphor. What, what do I mean by that? If you look at Isaiah 40.10, it tells you, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Now, this verse seems to distinguish the Lord from His arm. Now, if you look at this word, for His arm, rules, but the prepositional phrase, for Him, distinguishes God from His arm. Now, this curious phrasing, right, seems to create personal space between the arm and God. So my question is, could this be referenced to a person or to a certain group of people? Well, if you look at Isaiah 63, b and 12a, this is what it says. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. So here, the arm of the Lord is going with Moses to accomplish God's work of salvation. So God is using Moses to redeem his people from the nation of Egypt, right? Out of bondage. Remember, they was in bondage for 400 years or so, right? And God's using Moses as that arm, right? To, to, to get his people, to free his people. And finally, we see this in step number eight. Christ is the arm of the Lord. Now, how do I know that? Because just as God's arm was sent in the working of Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, now Christ has become greater than Moses. He has become a greater Savior than Moses. See, he's the arm of the Lord. And with the body prepared for him, right? That's what Hebrews 10.5 tells us. He was nailed. He was pierced. His hands were pierced. Why? To redeem his people. So in this way, the word of God is both fulfilled and the salvation that God brings is even better than could be imagined from the saints of old. So the scripture is speaking of Jesus. 
The scripture, scripture is speaking of Jesus being that sacrificial lamb, saving God's people, saving his people from God's wrath. Now, going back to the verse, this was fulfilled. The word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, let's go back to the arm of the Lord. In Hebrew, the arm of the Lord is speaking about the elbow on up to the shoulder. Remember that elbow on down is the hand of the Lord. So the arm of the Lord means from the elbow going up. Why? Because when they sacrificed the lamb, that sacrificial lamb, this was the choice part that they choose. This is what is giving as a sacrifice to the Lord, that upper part. Also in Hebrew, this phrase, the arm of the Lord, it is in reference to a male descendant or a son. Now, we also know this, that Jesus is the Son of God. So again, this is speaking about Jesus. When it talks about the arm of the Lord, this is speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, and it's pointing to the Messiah, it's pointing to the cross. Verse 39, for this reason, they cannot believe because as Isaiah sells elsewhere. So the prophet Isaiah said, this is, this is all about a suffering servant. This position of the arm of the Lord. Now, if you look at the scriptures and you look at what the prophets say and what Isaiah says, it's very clear that there's a suffering servant. But the Jews and the religious leaders, they don't see it. They don't believe it. Remember, Jesus Christ did many convincing signs proving that he was the Messiah. But yet they wouldn't accept it. So we see that they rejected the truth once again. Now here's the message that I want you to see. When we, when we reject revelation, when we reject truth, it's going to sear our conscience. It's what it's going to do. See, it makes us unable to discern. It makes us unable to believe. Verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Now, this seems opposite of what we would expect from God, right? I mean, why is it that their hearts are made to be hard, right? Their eyes will be made to be blind. Why? Because they, 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 they don't believe, they don't repent. Why doesn't God change them? Again, it goes back to free will. It goes back to a choice. God wants them to repent. And, and, and God's saying, if, if you totally reject me and you totally separated from me where you ought to reach, where there's no way to reach you, then the wrath needs to come upon you. See, these people, the religious leaders in particular, they didn't want to submit to the truth. They had no desire to fulfill a covenant expectation. See, they weren't interested in turning away from their own sins. And when you follow Christ, when you follow Jesus, you have to turn away from sin. You have to repent. But, but, but these people, they didn't want to do this. They, they didn't want a Messiah. Why? Because they wanted to do their own will. They wanted to do their own thing. But you see, today is not that much different. Things really haven't changed much today. 
Because people are still like this today, probably even worse. I mean, they say they're followers, right? They say, I love Jesus, right? They say, he's my Lord and my Savior. And they go to church and they go to retreats, they go to conferences or whatever the case may be. But, but the question is this, do they really serve him? See, anybody can serve and worship when you're in church or you at a retreat or you at a conference or you at Bible study. But what are you doing when you're out of that environment? See, a lot of people, you know, they're interested in their own will. And they simply say, in order to believe, right? In other words, if I believe and I do this, 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 and this, then God's going to give me what I want. So really what they're saying is, God, I'm going to serve you, but only if you serve me. In other words, what they're doing, they're negotiating with God, with Jesus. And you see right here, Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And this is what it means. Jesus is saying this, responding to God for the wrong reasons is really not responding to God at all. That's really what God is saying. Now, there's some scholars that say in this text means that Israel must go through hoarder exile, right, in order to understand their spiritual condition so they can truly understand and respond more boldly to Jesus. And we know that this is going to happen. And it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period, right? The last three and a half years, when the Jews realize they've been deceived by this Antichrist, right? When he goes into the Holy of Holies, he declares himself God. He institutes the mark of the beast. The Jews are going to flee. The Bible tells us that God protects that remnant of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, until Christ returns at the second coming. Verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So this shows that the prophet Isaiah was speaking about Jesus as that sacrificial lamb. That's what the scripture is telling us. Meaning, and showing the divinity of Jesus once again, and that Jesus was God in the flesh. So Isaiah sees it. And, and he's talking about Jesus as the Messiah, as that suffering servant that's going to come. Yet, in verse 42, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out the synagogue. Now, it says right here, yet at, some, at the same time, many among the leaders believed. So we see that some of the religious leaders did believe in Jesus, that he was the Messiah. We also see two more things here. See, Jesus wants people to come to him sincerely with integrity, right? With a sincere desire to respond in obedience. But they don't do this. Although they believe, they don't do none of this. What they do? But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear. They fear. Now, God tells us fear no one but him. But yet the scripture tells us, they didn't openly acknowledge him as the, as the Messiah because they feared they would be put out in the synagogue. Remember, the religious leaders ruled by what? By authority. They, 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 they excommunicated people from the community, meaning they couldn't worship in the temple if you didn't do exactly what they say. If you didn't, if you didn't stress and, and, and believe and back them, they put you out. See, these hard words, right, that Jesus spoke here, About, about that remnant of the leadership. They believed, but yet they feared. So they didn't act, out, act upon it. They didn't go out in public and acknowledge Jesus 
as the Messiah because they feared of what would happen to them. You know, and as we get more and more into the latter days, in the end times, this is how it's going to be. Because if you proclaim the gospel, and the Bible talks about this, open up the book of Revelation, right? Open up, go to Daniel. If, if, if you proclaim the gospel and, and believe in Jesus, you're going to be tortured. You're going to be excommunicated from the community is what you're going to be. And we know that Jesus wants us to proclaim the message of the gospel message. He wants us to proclaim the good news. He, he wants the world to know that to us to tell the world about the kingdom, what is to come and about the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of God. But these people fear. They fear the Pharisees. They fear the religious leaders. Now the question is this, what, what are we going to do if that time comes and when that time comes? Are we going to fear as well? Are we going to follow the truth? We're going to follow the word of God. We're going to be bold enough to, to do what God wants us to do. Remember, the religious leaders followed the traditions of the elders. They believed that they could teach people on what to do and, and what not to do, right? The bottom line is they wanted to rule over people. They wanted to enslave people into their leadership. So because of this, they, they didn't submit to truth. They didn't acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one true king, one true leader. So we see that the rest of the religious leaders fear because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. I mean, that's they, they pray three times a day. And if you put out the synagogue, you excommunicate it from the community. Verse 43, for they love human praise more than praise from God. So it tells us right here, this is flesh talking. We should look at this and we should think about this verse every day of our life. Because we need to ask ourselves every day. God, am I giving glory to myself or do I want to give you the glory? Right? In other words, is my life and how I live it. How I pray. The things that I do. How I talk to people. How I act towards people in front of people. Is it for me that I may receive praises from man? Or is my actions, right, my behavior, my prayer life, the things that I do, is it to glorify you? Is it to glorify your kingdom? Because it should be to glorify God. It should be to glorify Jesus. It should be to glorify the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. See, we need to glorify, honor, and praise, give glory to God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen? Verse 44, then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. So Jesus is saying here, man, if you believe in me, then you also believe in my father. It's connecting them as one. So this is two out of the three in the Trinity. He's telling us we're one. Look what he says in verse 45. The one who looks at me is not only seeing me, but the one who sent me. So again, he's talking about he and the father. They're a one. Is God the Father and God the Son. Verse 46, I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Now he refers to himself as the light and we know that scripture relates to him as the light. Remember, light is what brings order into the world. Let's go back to the book of Genesis at the very beginning. 
At the very beginning, in the beginning, the, the world, the earth was formless. It was void. And what did God say? God said, let there be light. Boom, and there was light. Meaning there was order. And because there was light, what did God do? What did God say? He said it was good. Now this word good means what? In accordance with the will of God, with the will of the Father. And that's how we're supposed to look at it. Because when you're in the light, you're going to do the will of Jesus. You're going to do the will of the Father. Because if, if you're not doing the will of the Father, then you're not in light. You're in the flesh. And look what he says about being in darkness. And we know that flesh leads to darkness. So that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So this tells us that someone who has not yet received Jesus, they rejected the light. And if you reject the light, there's only one place that you're going to end up, and that is darkness. And darkness means separation from God. And if you stay separated from God and you stay in darkness, we know that darkness is related to what? Hell. Once you die. So that's what Jesus is talking about. The one who believes in me is going to stay out of darkness. But the one who denies me is going to be what? In the darkness. Verse 47. If anyone who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to this world to judge, but to save the world. So he says, if anyone hears my words, this means something that has an outcome or has a result of. Here, let's talk about this word here. Here means to respond to. So one who believes his words, believes in the truth, there's going to be a result in that person's life. In other words, if you accept him, if you believe in the truth, if you follow the truth, and you change, and you start repenting, then you have light, he says. But look what else he says. I do not judge that person. So he means he's not judging right now. Because we know in the book of Revelation that God gives all authority to his son Jesus to judge. See, the first time he's saying, I did not come to judge. He's talking about the first time. He's talking about the first coming. He came to redeem people. He came to save people. But the second time he comes at the second coming, then he steps foot on the Mount of Olives, then he's coming to judge. Look what he says. He goes on. For I did not come to judge the world, but to what? Save it. So he's telling us again, I'm not here to judge the first time, but I'm here to redeem. I'm here to save. I'm here to help you get into the kingdom of God. Verse 48, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. So he's saying that there's one who condemns, but it's not him personally. So who is it? Look what he says. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. So when we look at the book of Revelation and we look at the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, it says that all the dead, and the dead meaning those that are spiritually separated from God. The unrighteousness, the unholiness, right? Those people that reject Jesus. Those people who reject the good news and reject the gospel. They're going to end up being judged at the end of that millennial kingdom. Now, all of us is going to be judged. All of us is going to be resurrected. Even the righteous and the unrighteous. We're all going to be, but it's at different times. The righteous will be resurrected. At what? At the rapture of the church. 
That's when the, the, the we're going to be resurrected at the rapture. Now those that make it through the tribulation, those Jews that come to faith in Christ, which is just a remnant, even Gentiles, those that come to faith and make it, they're going to die probably during the, the, the tribulation because we know it's just terror and horror. They're not going to take the mark of the beast and they're going to deny the, the Antichrist, which means they'll probably be put to death. But they, they believe. They come to faith in Messiah. They're going to be resurrected at the second coming of Jesus when he comes back. But the church itself, who are believers right now, They'll be resurrected at the rapture of the church. But those unrighteous people, they're going to stay in hell and they're going to be resurrected at the end of that thousand year millennial reign at the great white throne judgment. Where the Bible tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God is King and Lord of Lords. Verse 49. For I did not speak on my own, but my Father who sent me commanded me to say all the things I have spoken. So he's saying it's nothing personal here. Because everything he said, everything he did, was not of himself. It comes from the Father. He was being obedient to the Father. He was listening to the Father. The question is, are we obedient to the Father? Do, do we listen to the Father? Do we listen to his Son, Jesus Christ, by means of the Holy Ghost, by means of the Holy Spirit? But the Father who sent me condemned me to say all that I have spoken. So he's speaking about judgment here, right? Why do I say that? Because if you reject a covenantal relationship with God through Jesus, then you will be judged by the commandments. That's why he uses this word commanded here. But the Father who sent me commanded me. This is why he brings up this word command in this scripture. I know that this command leads to eternal life, he says. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So I know this command leads to eternal life. His commandment is the gospel. And this is really what we're going to be judged ultimately by. I mean, just look at Revelation 20. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, then you're saved. If not, then you're eternally separated from God the Father. And you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So how does your name get in the Lamb's book of life, you say? By accepting the gospel. By believing in Jesus as the Son of God. By having faith and trusting and obeying Him. That's what the Bible teaches us. Amen? So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So again, He's telling us here, I speak nothing but the truth. I speak nothing but God's Word. I speak the gospel is what He's saying, right? So this tells us that we must accept the truth in order to be saved. Now, what is the truth or more importantly, who is the truth? Jesus Christ is the truth. God's word is the truth. See, the reason the gospel is used here is that the gospel is the good news about the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus came to do the Father's will. He was faithful to that one commandment. And this is what we're called to do. To be faithful to the truth, to be faithful to Jesus, to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to the word of God, the Bible, because it's God's holy word. And if we do that, then this brings us victory over sin and over death. Amen. And that ends our lesson for today.
We're going to be back next week. We're going to continue on in the gospel of John. We sure do appreciate you all tuning in and listening. Go be a light for someone this week. Let that light, let that beacon shine in you where the people see Jesus in you and you can bring them to Yeshua. You can bring them to Jesus Christ and give them a chance at that gospel message. Give them a chance to be redeemed, to be renewed. Amen. We love you guys until next week. God bless.